Welcome to the Strategy Mom Podcast. Tune in for everything you need to know to stay in the know regarding the automotive industry. Here's your host, Jason Harris. Hey, 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 what's going on, Podcast Nation? It is Jason Harris here, and thank you for joining me on another episode of Strategy Mob. Today, I have a very special guest, the one, the only, the oh-so-famous Mr. Ted Lancaster is in the house. Hey, Ted. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing Thanks good, man. quite nice. <laughs> Do you like that intro? Was that good? Yeah, it was really good. Really All good. right. I've been practicing that radio announcer voice just oh. in case this whole automotive thing doesn't work out for me. I might have another career. <laughs> that's right. Hey, you never know what can happen. Right? <laughs> Seriously, right? Right now, this, that's the way things are right now. We just never know what's going to happen. Well, Ted, I've been really excited, looking forward uh, to having this conversation with you. Um, you know, we were kind of talking a little bit off camera, and you truly are just the buffet of information when it comes to everything to do with the automotive industry. But I thought we'd kick off the podcast for everybody out there that's watching and listening right now and don't know kind of how you got started or kind of what your background is. I thought it'd be cool if we do a little origin story. So so what is the origin story that is Ted Lancaster? Uh, well, you know what? I'll, I'll go. I won't go too, too far back, but um really coming out of university, it was uh, hockey or law were the two areas that I was going to delve into. Um, the hockey thing had some promise, but uh, I got a little jaded with some of the things that were going on. And I decided to step away. Um, kind of wish I hadn't because I see some of the guys I was playing against that played a pretty long career. And I thought that, you know, I was a goaltender and I thought, you know, I, I think I was better than him at that time. So I kind of, you know, it chews at you a little bit, but um no, I, I uh, when I, when I stopped with the, with the hockey, I, I moved back to Canada um, and took a job with John Verponet Buick in St. Catharines, and I was hired, I think, just because of my hockey background, because his son played hockey, and the general manager at the time loved the sport and thought, oh, this is great, we got a hockey guy in the group. Um, so I started on the floor. I mean, I can't say I started washing cars and worked my way up, but I did start as a salesperson, um, you know, and that was oddly enough back at a time where I watched, you know, salespeople one in particular, throw the keys on the roof and say, you're not leaving until you buy a car. So back when it was ruthless, I would say, um, but I learned a lot and I learned, you know, how to interact with people. And I learned how to communicate with people. And I, you know, I thought I had a decent background coming out of university communicating because my undergraduate was, was law. Um, and I went from there and became a business manager. And then to, you know, from a, from a GM store to a Honda store and, uh, you know, as a, as a business manager and, and learning the sales manager role and things like that. And, you know, uh, then I, I joined Honda Canada. So I applied for a role for the Western Honda Acura plus rep. And I went out and think I did a pretty good job. We were always, you know, kind of top of the charts against some of the competition within the organization. And that got me a promotion to district sales manager. Um, and then when Mitsubishi was launching in 2002, I was employee 13. So, yeah, lucky number 13 for me. Um, so it was great. I mean, I joined the company before they launched and helped get the dealership set up and, and really learned an awful lot about what it takes to start up um, not just dealerships, but a business in, in Canada. And I, I great staff that I worked with there. I spent seven years with them and I ended as uh, director of sales operations. Um, and, and I had everything kind of reporting to me, which was really neat because, again, it's that education piece. Uh, from there, I, I remember I was in Winnipeg and I got off the phone and there was a message and it was Mark, Marcus Breischwert from Mercedes Benz. And in his German accent said, you know, I've heard good things. Will you give me a call? I gave him a call. And um, at the end of 2008, uh, I joined Mercedes Benz uh, out in Western Canada um, and, and helped them grow. They were having some challenges and uh, helped them develop some of, some of the fundamentals, I think, of the business that I had learned. Um, and we had some, a challenging start, but, but grew to a very, very strong region. Uh, and then went back to retail with the Delari group and had really good success there and enjoyed working with the group. Um, and then, you know, Nissan and went up to VP with, with Nissan Canada. And then shortly after that, um, you know, it's just these opportunities, right? Headhunter, they were looking at, at Kia Canada for a COO role. And I thought, yeah, why not? You know, I mean, I had a good job with with Nissan, and it was a it was a great organization. Um, but you you gotta you gotta try these things. And 
I, I remember the interview. The first one was at a restaurant um, and Mr. Kim was, was fantastic, asked really good questions. I thought I answered them professionally. Uh, and I had probably the two oddest questions I ever had were, were the two interviews I had. One was, um, do I yell at people? And I remember <laughs> saying to Mr. Kim, I said, no, I, I said, you know, if you're going to be a leader yelling shows, you know, that you're out of control. And my position is, you know, and I look, I can be emphatic and I can be stern, but yelling doesn't do anything. It makes you look almost like a crazy person. And I said, so no, I, I don't yell. I said, I try and get my point across in different ways, but I don't yell. And then the final interview I had, it was me sitting across the boardroom table with him um, and, you know, the coordinators. So it was, it was like um, I was the international bridge between two countries and I was the only one on my side. And uh, it was it was great. I mean, it was an interesting conversation. And Mr. Kim, the president, didn't ask one question the whole time. It was everybody else. And then he said, I said, do you not have a question? You're the president. You got to have at least one last question. And he said, yes, um, I've lost distance in my drive. And I'm wondering, since you're a golfer, if you could tell me why that might be. <laughs> That's so, a great question. <laughs> yeah, it was a great question. So he, he, I, I, um, I asked a couple questions of him and, and he had been told that he needed to uh, slow down his his takeaway, and he was slowing down his entire swing. And we discovered it. And I said, "Look, just take your take. You know, your takeaway needs to be nice and smooth, and then accelerate on the way down. You'll get your distance back." Sure enough, when I started with him, he said, "Great tip. It worked very well for me. I'm hitting much further now." And I thought, "Well, great. I've already solved the problem for the president, and here we go. We're off to a good, robust start." So, uh, and then you know, I was three years plus with them, and and stepped away and went down to the U.S. for a little bit, did some consulting, and helped um, Canadian Group acquire dealership in the U.S. Uh, came back up, and I've been on the retail side ever since, and and you know, with the Plaza Group most recently, and uh, you know, we've had we had great success there, growing their business over the past year, and now they're flourishing and doing a wonderful job, and. Um, so yeah, I, I've done a little bit of everything in the automotive industry. You, tr and, you truly have. You really have. Yeah. I mean, when you think of just kind of like the uh, pocket knife of automotive, it's yeah, kind so of, you think of the, it's like Ted Lancaster. That's yeah. that's what that's what it is. It's the pocket knife yeah. of the business. But you know what though? The, the cool thing is, since you have had so much experience, at OEM level, group level, dealer level. Yeah operations, marketing, um, buying dealerships, selling dealerships. I mean, you were with Mercedes back when Mercedes owned a lot of those dealerships, which was really right. more like a dealer group in some cases. So I imagine yeah. a, lot of the, a lot of the marketing things and a lot of just the day-to-day -day operations have to be dealt with as well when, when you're in that kind of that position. And so you've seen you know, dealerships go through good times and bad times. You've seen good operations you've seen crappy operations you've seen great operations you know so i imagine there's just there's just a lot that you've consumed and you know given our current environment i just would love to kind of get, pick your brain you know about just how you see kind of moving forward i mean i know for like myself you know all the marketing strategies and everything we do has just been based on all the experience and knowledge that we've had over the last 10 years but it's like right now i almost have to throw everything we know out the door um, and like kind of restart, but I, I'm, I'm curious from your perspective, Ted, is like, how do you see our industry kind of progressing over the next, you know, six to 12 months? I think, um, I think the, the, for me, it's optimism. Um, I think the one thing that we're going to see coming out of this is the level of professionalism has to get better. Um, I, I recently spoke at TLS summits in the U S and it's, um, it was a program, uh, dedicated to customer experience. And we talked quite a bit about, um, you know, really what customers' expectations are and, and how we're handling them uh, in today's world. And one of the pieces that I brought up was a Gallup poll study that was done in 2012, where it was a trustworthiness study. So it's looking at a variety of professions and what level of trustworthiness do you have with that profession? Um, and automotive salespeople had an 8% um, trustworthiness rating. So that was horrible. Um, but that was 2012. Well, they did the same study in 2018. And we went from being at the bottom to being tied at the bottom. So the only thing that happened in 2018 were congressmen dropped to 8% trustworthiness and salespeople still remained at 8%. <laughs> That's scary. And for me, it is, and it's frustrating because for me, who's been so entrenched on in the automotive side of the business, 
Um, it's frustrating because I saw so much change from 2012 to 2018. OEMs and dealers both worked very hard at improving the professionalism. So it really bothered me why um, they still struggled with that trustworthiness factor. And it's, it's sad, but we still, um, you know, getting talent, you know, I talked about a talent pool years ago, and now I, I had a dealer once tell me that we're dealing with a talent puddle. And, and that's sad. <laughs> it drives me nuts when they say stuff like that. It, it, it does, but the challenge is getting good people because of the reputation and because of changes in our industry. I mean, the biggest challenge that I've seen happen over the last 10 years is really the um, the available gross profit and, and ability to, you know, make a living as a automotive salesperson. And people always say, well, how's that not, you know, how's it possible? And their cars, they're 20, $30,000. How can you not make enough money? Well, if customers look at, and I'll even go back five years ago, if you go back five years and you look at what the available gross profit was, and you look at the technology that's gone into cars over the past five years, the increase in price is not reflective of the technology. Right, not even close. But what's totally had agree. to happen is OEMs have had to take a little bit less gross profit on the cars they wholesale to the dealer, and the dealer is naturally their gross profit gets lowered by the OEM. And I had an interesting, interesting conversation with a gentleman uh, maybe two weeks ago, uh, and he used to work at uh, Future Shop when Future Shop was in operation, and when he sold a dishwasher, fridge, and stove. There was more gross in that for a five thousand dollars set yep. than there was in, say, a Kia Forte because he worked at a, a Kia store and the know. Kia Forte he was selling. It's crazy. It's it's right? abso absolutely crazy. It is, and it's very very difficult. But what what's had to happen is, you know, you back to your original question. We talk about that type of scenario. Um, margins are shrinking. It's tougher to get good talent, um, but we have to get better because now. The communication that we have to have with consumers, the advanced um, review of product, um, sending video to customers, uh, new ways of creating opportunities with customers, all those things that continue to change are driving us to be better at our jobs because loyalty is fleeting with a lot of OEMs, right? It's not so much about the brand that my dad drove. It's about who's taking care of me. Yeah, and loyalty really is now the responsibility of the dealership, not necessarily the OEM, oh. I think, moving forward. It is. It's, it's very shared responsibilities. I mean, if you take good care of me and you are trusted, you are going to, without question, earn my business. And you'll maintain it so long as you keep that level of communication, that level of professionalism up. So, you know, COVID, when it drove us in Ontario, it drove us into a situation where our service departments could only be open and our showroom floors, it was remote selling only. We had to get better. We had to get better at communicating. We had to get better at paperwork. We had to get better at sending customers details on the product. And in doing that, we continue to learn. And by continuing to learn, we continue to evolve. And as we continue to evolve, we can continue to get better. So, you know, I, I look at COVID as a well, very I, I think some case. people will do that, right? Some I mean, like Ted, we know, like we've been in the business long enough to know that we, we, we're in an industry that doesn't change overly well, fast. It's resistant to change. We're willing to change, right? Yeah. So like, I, I agree with you, man. I think this whole, the, look, COVID was a horrible. The pandemic's horrible. You know, like yep. it's done some, but there are some things that have affected in certain industries that actually start to make positive effects. And and one of them is that this monster ball of change all of a sudden have it to happen. I mean, I, I give our industry sometimes pretty hard time it's from love though it's not just me giving them hard time but um you know we changed more in the last three months than we have in the last 30 years combined and i'm just hoping that we keep that momentum going what did you say it's a good thing yeah i, I think it's a good thing and i think it has i think it's built momentum in our industry for individual dealers groups to think a little bit differently about how they conduct their business and you know i Working on the OEM side, we always talked about the benefit of CSA or customer service areas where we could have a strong dealer buy a number of dealerships in close proximity, and he would have that coverage area, and that would be a good thing. I, I'm generally in favor of that. I do caution that there is risk because 
when something happens negative in the industry, whether you know we go back to 2007, 2008 with the financial crisis in the US, or you look at this situation, large groups can suffer the most. And that is such a large impact if you are spread too widely with you know one individual group. So you know because I worked for um, the Delari Group, they are very entrenched with Honda and Acura. Okay, now very strong group, very very good at what they do. I think they've weathered this situation better than some of the other groups in Canada. Um, but there are some out there that you know again if you're too entrenched and something bad happens in the industry, it can really bugger your your flow of product, your, your inventory management, it can change everything from an outflow. Oh, it, it changes a lot. I mean, I hate to say, you know, there are some groups that handle this real well. And then I hate to say it, Ted, there's a lot of groups that just stuck their heads in the sand, their fingers in their ears and la, 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 until this all was over. And, and the way it affected their staff, like, I mean, I was talking to salespeople and controllers and managers of some of these bigger, larger groups that, you know, for three months straight didn't hear a single piece of communication come out of their group, you know? So like, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, there's look the, when you're, when you're that big and you're that strong and you're that size of ship, you can do some really amazing positive things with it. But also, unfortunately you can just hunker down and just wait out the storm. Well, you think about the economic impact because banks as good as they were to dealers trying to help out. The one thing that they said they weren't going to do is not charge the interest. So, you have a group that's got, you know, across Canada, let's just say a thousand, make it simple, say a thousand cars. And that every one of those cars is 25,000 on average. And when you get the numbers broken down, you're paying two, two and a half percent floor line on that every single month. And you're not selling in the volume you used to. The financial impact is ridiculous, right? It's huge. So, you know, I, I think, um, I think as we look at the industry for, from a change standpoint, we are going to get so much better at pre-selling. And I was, look, when I was at Kia, I said on multiple occasions, I can't wait for the day where a customer can drive on the lot and the salespeople will have their tablets and they can go through almost the whole process and swipe. And the swipe sends it to the manager inside and the manager can improve everything and swipe it back. And he can look, he said, congratulations. As you sit there, you now own that vehicle and really give them quotes in real time and, and process in real time. And that's what COVID has done. We have to do that now. I mean, as an industry, you have to be able to answer customers remotely. You have to be able to answer customers in real time. Um, and, and there's a lot of technology out there that's helping you do that from doing uh, trade-in evaluations and providing you know, risk-free opportunities to drive vehicles for seven days or 10 days and be able to return it if it doesn't meet your needs and exchange it for something else. I think FAF Group also at seven days, you can return it if you want with no penalties. Yeah, I saw that. That was pretty cool. There are groups out there that are, that are providing services like a lot of other smaller industry do already. Well, um, that's a good point. I mean, I, I think for anybody to be truly successful over you know this next period, it's not enough that we just meet the customer's expectations. It's not enough that we're just providing the product. You know, it's like the customers now are looking at how we're going to exceed their expectations. Of course. And, you know, I mean, dealer groups are going to have to come and respond to that. Dealerships are going to have to come and respond to that. And um, I'm curious because I feel like what this done is as an industry has really forced us, forced us. I mean, literally took our arms, stuck behind our back and forced it to become more customer centric than we probably have ever been, you know, since well, probably the beginning of our industry. What do you yeah. think? No, I think it has. I mean, when you have, I liken it to, to online shopping. Okay. And, and take, say not, and when I say that, I'm saying take away shopping for a car, just look at online shopping. I read a wonderful article maybe a year ago about Amazon. And when you look at the fundamentals of Amazon, what's changed with them over the years, other than expanding and growing, the fundamental aspect of their business is unchanged. Come to my website, purchase a product, and we're going to get it to you as quickly as possible. And you're going to be happy with it or you're going to return it. That's the fundamental basis of Amazon, right? And now you've got Amazon Web Services and you've got the ability for, you know, if you're a subscriber, you can put your own products on there and sell them. Like, I mean, it's expanded in different ways, but the fundamental aspects of Amazon remain unchanged. And I think that's where, you know, um, I think the quote that I read was something you have to be as 
efficient as Amazon and as professional as Apple to really get ahead in today's world. And I think That's from an totally automotive true. standpoint, I think that resonates. I think, you know, the dealerships that are doing the best out there right now are the ones that took on COVID and said, this is a terrible situation, but we are here for you. And here's how we're here for you. And they communicated with their customers and they cleaned their database and they made sure their customers knew that they were there for service. And, or if they felt that they needed to shut down, they communicated that as well and made sure that their customers were kept aware of what was going on. There were regular updates. The websites were clean and updated properly. Um, it's just, it, again, I go back to the professionalism. COVID has forced us to be better from a professionalism standpoint than what we've ever had to be. And oh, I think that's hundred percent. I really do. We can't half-ass it anymore. No. I mean, that's really what it is, right? I mean, I mean, look, you know, you know, prior to last year, all right, for the four or five years before that, all right, we had double-digit gains quarter after quarter after quarter after quarter. I mean, come on, let's face it. Depending on your brand, all right, if you showed up, opened your doors, and turned on the open sign, you were making money. <laughs> you know, like you didn't have to, I, you know, I saw a lot of what I call, I like call it full belly syndrome, where it's yeah. just like, hey, I'm satisfied with what I got. I'm just going to continue to move forward. But you didn't have to put a whole lot into it. You could, you know, you, you could tell the customer, look, I got a, a 12 step process. And if you don't like it, then go somewhere else because I don't give a flying F, you know, and, and that's but I'm seeing to your point, Ted, is that that. That cream is rising to the top, right? Those true leaders, those true owners, are beginning to get identified, and they're realizing that we have to, we have to change. Like we have to give the customer that ABC option. We need to, we need to kind of hand the steering wheel back over to them and let them kind of, you know, steer the direction of the sell or the service. You know, a lot like how Apple does. You know, then Apple, Apple doesn't come in and force you into a, a path to purchase. They're just kind of like. Well, we're here. We'll support you. Where do you want to? I mean, I love going in there and buying stuff. I don't have to sit at a counter. I just look at something. You want that? Yeah, they swipe my card right there and walk away. Yeah, and and they make it. I mean, again, when they're promoting their brand um, through their marketing, it's lifestyle, right? I mean, capture your entire life on this phone, on this you know hands-free device. You capture your entire life. You have a great time with it. They're not. And the funny thing is. You remember when cell phones first came out, it was all about communicating and talking to people remotely without a cord. That was the sales pitch. Now the sales pitch is look at how you can share your life with this three, what is it? A three uh, prong camera, I, I, sorry, three uh, lens camera. You got a three lens camera now and look at how we can capture. They don't talk about, I, I think it's the NHL is, or sorry, iPhone has just had uh, a recent commercial come out and they tied in the NHL and it's got Marc-Andre Fleury, the goaltender from, the nights. Oh, I did. Um, I saw this campaign. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, right? yeah, and they're yeah. shooting this entire segment shot on the iPhone 11. And in wait a minute, I thought we were. I thought it's a phone, but it's it's not. It's a lifestyle piece now, and that's why they're making such inroads. Is they're tying life experience to the technology, and we as an industry, I think that's where we can continue to make gains. And more and more companies are doing it. They are. You're seeing commercials where families are on road trips, particularly following COVID. I think the OEMs have responded very well with marketing about hit the road with your family where you can, right? I mean, you can't fly, so let's get in the car. And I think to when I was growing up, my dad, he flew his entire life. He, he had to for work, but when it came time for family vacations, we drove everywhere because he didn't want to hop on another plane so i saw almost every u.s state by driving and and he was a civil war buff and we had to do the the gettysburg put the tape oh my in gosh my father forth. sounds exactly like yours my goodness i mean seriously you had like again the tape went in and it was you will notice that the tree is split in the center the cannonball in 17 oh my goodness how many times <laughs> we got to go through it but that was how we connected as a family and OEMs are getting back to that, talking about that connection through the vehicle and the technology the vehicle provides. So the safety's there, you know, some vehicles are offering Wi-Fi now as a service, you've got connectivity there, you know, there's all kinds of connectivity where you can start, find your car, do anything you need to do. And we're really starting to brand and talk about connecting your life to your vehicle. And I think it's a great move for the industry. I think it, 
helps win customers over. Um, and again, it's it's just it's, it, look, it, you know, it's going to just bring that better experience. But I still 100%. feel the dealerships got to figure out how they're going to do this as well. See, like I, I get into some of these conversations, meetings. Like, well, you know what, my manufacturer's going to do that. Mm, yeah, but that's your manufacturer's brand, right? I need to know why someone's going to come back to you versus the other thirty-seven Nissan stores in the GTA, right? So it's like I feel. Like, and I'm beginning to see more of this, right? I mean, our marketing has changed so much. I mean, no one's out there pushing the message, huge discounts, low yeah. lease rates. I mean, well, some are, but they're not as much as what it was before. And I think they begin to realize is that the consumer knows you got incentives. They know you got specials, but they want to know why they should be doing business with you. And I think that there's a lot of dealerships out there that are actually still kind of struggling to identify you know, their why. Look, they all know what they do, right? Yeah. We sell cars and we service them and we sell some parts. <laughs> you know, like that's what we do. We all know how we do it. I mean, I think the last, you know, the last forty years of being in the business, you know, we've seen how we've identified of how exactly we actually do this, right? Yeah. Um, but I, I still think a lot of dealerships haven't identified why they do it the way they they do it. So that that can be a part of that element. To your point, it's kind of that lifestyle. This is this is something that I can connect with. Well, I want to be able to kind of connect with this business as a brand, but I don't know why they actually do it the way that they do it. You know, and I'm sure you've probably seen some good examples of. So I'm actually that's my question: is Have you seen some kind of good examples where dealerships have really identified their why? Yeah, and I think there's a number of dealerships across Canada and the U.S. And you know, I again, I've been very fortunate to. You know, most of the focus has been in North America, but in my travels with various OEMs, I've had a chance to visit dealers throughout the world. And there are some that do things very, very well. Um, you know, I'll talk about uh, Korea, visit to, to Seoul. Um, and, you know, we, we visited a dealership where they had little stations and touch screens where they could really show the product and demonstrate the product. Uh, and it was a boutique little store. And they sold a ton of vehicles. And once the customer had picked and did the virtual drive experience and everything like that, they could come pick up their vehicle. And it was in, I think there were four parking spots out front where new cars could be delivered. But they just had the whole process of the, the, the starting communication to the meet, to demonstrating in a virtual environment, to then getting to delivery, getting the vehicle sold and getting it to delivery. Across Canada and the US, there's a number of companies that are doing a very, very good job. I think one of the companies that does a really good job of retargeting to make sure that they stay on the minds of customers and then the follow-up and the communication and the experience is the H. Gregg Group. So, you know, the, the, the Herbadians, John particularly, um, a very good relationship with him, uh, very, very smart individual. And, and what they've done is they've just found a way to make sure that their brand is top of mind. It's easily identifiable. And the experience, I mean, it's a little nuanced, but what they've done is they put these large, massive amounts of cars in the lot. If you ever have a chance to go to one of their dealerships, try and drive to them because you can't. They really have them blocked off. They force you to park at which point in time a product advisor can meet with you and they start the conversation before the customer can get out and just start wandering around. And they get that discussion going early on. And then it's that level of professional. Let us tell us about the H. Gregg Group. Let, let us introduce you to the lifestyle that is H. Gregg. Yeah, let me introduce and you to the brand. Let me introduce you to the brand. So H. Gregg in the U.S., H. Gregoire in Canada. And they've just done a very, very good job of it. And through COVID, their ads continued. Their marketing continued. They talked about their safety protocols. And they did a very, very good job of making sure that every customer knew that if they came to visit, they were going to be safe, they're going to be well taken care of, and there was going to be a bountiful amount of product to, to look at. And it, again, it, it really comes down to identifying who you are. Now, they have in their retail store, so their stores where they have an OEM partner, um, they have service. But at their other stores, they don't. Once you buy a car, take it and go to your local Chevy or Chrysler, whatever it is, Honda, Toyota, take it to them, get serviced by them. We don't service. We just do a really good job of selling cars. They found their identity. They know what they are, who they are, and do a great job of it. And I think that's, you know, a, a prime example of a group that really did identify who they are, get the process in place, and make it work for them. 
And, and there are a ton of other examples where, you know, the sales and service uh, elements of the operations work very fluidly. And the dealers that I think do the best job recognize what service really does. And I've said this for years, um, sales will sell the first car, fixed operations sells every car after that. Well, you're, you're 100% right. It all comes down to the process. And, you know, we talked about this a little earlier. We're going to process our way to profitability. This is not just going to kind of happen, all right? Look, our, our embracement of technology has been great, all right? I think for a lot of dealerships, they're realizing that they've had to um, adapt and give their customers that ABC options of how they want to actually engage with us. But now we're kind of getting to the service side. And I, here's something before we get into the service side, because I think it all kind of comes together, it's something that's been bugging me a lot lately. And I wanted to ask you about is, is actually kind of pay structures. Because we, we talked a little earlier on where you were kind of talking about like how we're hiring and who we're hiring. And I agree with you. I still think that we're in this mentality of we hire superstar mentality. Like we just want superstars. We want everybody in our dealership to be 30 car a month people. That's it. Like, so we're constantly hunting for that individual, but we're not hunting necessarily for that team member. You know, and what I'm realizing is that the way that we're still paying our service advisors, our service managers, our salespeople, our sales managers, our, their pay structures are not necessarily putting the customer at the center of their efforts. It's putting the dealership's goals and objectives at the center of their efforts. But where our processes are leaning more towards being customer centric, but our pay structures are still not. I want to hear your kind of thoughts on that. I think... Um... I think the first thing, and, and, and again, we modified pay structures uh, at my last place of employment because they weren't the greatest. Um, but one of the things that I think you should start with is make sure people can earn at least minimum wage. Okay. So the, the days of, of just pure commission, I think we need to get away from that. And I'm going to give you two scenarios because they work very well in tandem with one another. So the first thing is your salespeople, I think, give them at least the amount to make minimum wage, which is roughly $27,000 per year. Um, and then categorize based on volume, how much you want to pay. So zero to say seven cars is $150 bonus per car. Uh, if you get between seven and 10, it'll go to 200. If you get 10 to 13 or 14, 250. And then, you know, 15 and above 350. If you do it that way, when you look at what minimum wage is, it's roughly, we'll say roughly 2000 a month. But if you sell, let's just say 10 cars, that's another 2,500. So now you're making 4,500 per month. That's 50,000 a year. That's a reasonable income for, you know, we're getting younger people in the industry. It's not a bad income for no, just doing a decent job selling an average number of cars. Okay. The question I get from dealers is, yeah, but then they're not focused on growth. Well, here's, here's, where, here's where there's a good option. Take your general manager. Let's say they expect to make 150,000 per year. No problem. I'm gonna give you 75,000 as a base because I wanna make sure that you feel somewhat comfortable that you're gonna earn a decent income. And I'm gonna pay you 75,000 bonus. And the bonus is based on you and I sitting together and putting our gross profit targets together. Okay. We're going to sit, we're going to do that. We're going to talk about gross profit per month is for the dealership. Every time you hit that gross profit, you're going to get one month of $75,000. So you'll make your 150,000. If you just do your job, you'll make 150,000. But if you go over every thousand dollars over the gross profit target, I'm going to pay you a bonus of a hundred bucks. So if you go over by 10,000, you'll get another thousand dollars. So Every single time the focus is salespeople need to focus on the volume, the general manager who should be focused on the gross profit, focus on the gross profit. I agree because they they, they're controlling, they're focusing on the gross profit of the entire dealership, yes. right? What I actually drive me nuts is when I see sales managers actually being bonus on the gross profit. We kind of actually talked about this really kind of early on during our podcast, how margins are getting smaller and smaller. And I kind of question, I'm like, how much control does a salesperson really have over the profitability of this thing? <laughs> you know? But I think we all going back to what you said about customer experience, and we talk about the professionalism. I know, over the course of my career, I have paid more for an excellent customer experience. I you know, yeah, I can drive totally with you on that one. hundred percent. I can drive an hour and I can save. And, and it's funny. I use 
so I played hockey. And when I, when I stopped playing super competitive hockey and just played rec hockey, I could have my skate sharpened anywhere. But I found a guy that was literally 35 minutes away, but he cut skates better than anybody. And I didn't mind spending the money to drive down and drive back because he, as, as a goaltender, I wanted uh, about a one with a high inside edge. And he would, he would hold the skate up and he would put a coin on it to make sure it was just a little bit of a high inside edge. And it was, you know, every time he did it, I thought he's taking good care of me and he made sure, you know, there was a chip here. I had to grind it a little bit. I had to do this. I had to do that. Like it was fantastic. And it was worth the drive and worth any additional expense because I got such great service. And that was just getting skate sharp. <laughs> well, no, but I think we're all like that. I mean, look, I, I have a couple of restaurants. I'm sure you probably do too, you know, but I mean, like I, I, I love a good old fashioned. Like I'm, I'm just, I try old fashions pretty much everywhere I go. I'm always on the hunt for the, the best one I can find. And, yeah. and you know, the, there's, there's a couple places I go to, um, and they're a little out of my way, but I walk in, they're like, Hey Jay, what's going on? The usual, please. Um, you know, it's just, but having that connection and creating that relationship, I think is what really drives us to go to that direction. So I got a crazy right. idea. I want to throw a crazy idea at you and sure. see what your thoughts are on this, because I, I know it, it, look in the States, it's been super common for many, many years, this hybrid approach between sales and F and I. Okay. And I've started to see some Canadian dealerships dabble in it, but not a whole lot. Right. I'm actually under, uh, the, under the thought that I actually want to combine my service advisor and my salesperson together because I know from training and consulting that I find I'll actually take people back and forth. Like I'll take good service advisors, turn them into great car salesmen, and I'll take, you know, some car salesmen and actually turn them into better service advisors. And then that way they kind of control the entire relationship of it. So it's like from purchase to trade in or sell or death of the car all right i got that one person i can go back to you know so then the salesperson doesn't have to sell 20 30 cars they can sell 10 you know and service all of their relationships and still maintain that salary you know that's or, or still be able to make make the, uh, a decent amount of money they're not so stressed about always having to focus on one I, I, it's something i've been working on for a while but i'm curious to get your thoughts on it i think i look Every idea has merit. I've learned over the course of a career that every idea has elements of it that are meritorious. I think the challenge you find with something like that is if the salesperson is working with a consumer on the sales side, we know that can take an hour, an hour and a half to go through the whole process. If one of their customers comes in and they're supposed to be doing the service advisor thing, I think you can run into challenges with you know, the customer experience at that point in time, because they're going to end up inevitably, somebody's going to have to deal with them other than that sales service advisor hybrid, where I think there's opportunity. And I'm a big, big proponent of this, getting techs involved. You know, now that, now that shops are much cleaner and they're redoing the floors and guys are better dressed, nobody is better at talking to a consultant or sorry, talking to a customer about what's going on with their vehicle and the guy working on it. You know right? what? I, I talk to my tech all the time. I love talking to my tech because, you know, it's like I've had a great relationship with them. They know the car really well. Now he's a little rough around the edges, but I don't mind, you know, no, no, but I agree with you. No, I, you're better, I, look, if he tells me something needs to be done, I'm like, okay, I mean, you, you're the professional, you know, it's yeah, all, you, no, you, you have some trust in the guy because he's done the schooling, right? It's, it's like, it's like my mom, when, when, you know, we're talking about health and stuff like that. And I say, you know, how you doing? Are things okay? Things going well? Yeah. Yeah. I'm in to see the doctor. I said, well, you trust everything. Well, you know, she did take the course. Yes. Mother, she took the course. She's a doctor. She knows what she's doing. Same thing with techs, right? They, they're like doctors for the car. They took the course. They are highly trained by the, the OEM, you know, and there's, there's another thing from an industry standpoint is, I really wish customers would focus on going back to the the dealership that sold them the car because the training and the technology involved in cars and the tools and technology that the the techs are trained on and provided to work on the vehicles is so much better than just the generic products that go into some of the um, other sources of of repair. Uh, and I think they sell great about come in, we can do everything. Um, they don't have the OEM tool. They don't have the certified mechanic. They 
have a great mechanic, but they haven't gone through the training to work on the specific cars. They've worked on a bunch of cars and just no cars. So um, our techs are so intelligent. You know, I go back all the time and I look, you know, they're geniuses when you think about what they have to plug into, how they read the diagnostics. Everything is getting more technological and technology is really changing how the industry conducts its business. And we talked about it earlier that that is really helpful in making us more professional and that leads to a better overall customer experience. So as much as I, I go back to your, your, your hybrid sales service advisor, I would say tech advisor would be a, a, a better way I, to look I, at it. I like that idea too. I think that could be, I mean, that's That's got a lot of legs to it. I mean, for sure. I mean, there are the ones that are trained, you know, it wouldn't take much and admit a bit of coaching and just, you know, relationship development and, you know, conversations to be able to turn that person into, you know, into that type of role. And, um, you know, we're having a hell of a time finding new techs. So yeah. this might be a great way where it's like, you know, the idea of a tech being this grease monkey with these dirty fingernails and stuff like that is changing because the technology is changed so much on cars that it's yeah. like maybe we need to kind of re-image what a technician looks like and that may draw new people into it. In fact, actually, we were talking about that earlier and I actually do kind of want to go back to that a little bit because I do get a, a lot of dealerships that'll tell me the exact same thing is that the, you know, the talent pool is not a pool, it's a puddle. And yeah. I just feel like they're just looking in the wrong place, you know, because they're just constantly looking for that superstar. You know, they're not looking for, you know, that, that young person that's just got great communication skills and that will have a conversation over a computer for hours if necessary, if the customer wants. So, I mean, how, moving forward, I think just kind of another opportunity to be more successful is as an industry, where should we be looking for this next set of talent? I, I think you can look anywhere. You know, I mean, there's not a time where, you know, you talk about going to the restaurant and having the old fashioned because they know you. I mean, if, if you have someone, a server to your table, good personality, you know, I, I think we get too caught up in, I have to hire someone with industry experience. I have to hire someone with industry experience. What if that industry experience is bad? What if you're, what if you're hiring somebody that's got, you know, baggage and issues and, and you're not able to look at exactly what his uh, CX scores are and you don't know exactly how he treats customer, how he completes deals. You just know he sells a pile of cars. You bring him in and he's a disaster for your business. I I've said for years that um, I, I much rather hire personality with some skills because I can always teach more skills than someone's got a terrible attitude and has, you know, the, the plethora of skills that I need because we are so much migrating over. I mean, millennial and Gen Z have really taught us that, hey, man, treat me right and I'll do business with you. But if you don't, I'm telling everybody, right? Like in a heartbeat. It only I mean, takes, takes just a few minutes on this bad boy for me to tell the whole bloody world how amazing or how horrible my experience was with your location, right? Yeah. And, and I was... I, I tried to explain this to to a dealer about a year ago, and I said, just just think, it's not about truth so much anymore. Because you know, you, you could so so let's let's look at two Starbucks, one on Thirty Second Street, one on Thirty Seventh Street. So the guy gets up and he's got an eviction notice on his door, and his dogs had an accident in his house, and he falls down the stairs, and work is giving him grief because he's running late or a project's not done on time, and he, he gets bumped as he's going into the Starbucks and instead of Mike, they put Mark on his cup by accident. He loses his mind. That's what puts him completely over the edge. And guess what? He's on telling everybody that they couldn't even get my name right at the Starbucks on 32nd street. This is ridiculous. Go to 37th where they always seem to get it right. And everybody believes that everybody that's in his social network believes that and 32nd Street loses business to 37th because Mike had a terrible day leading up to it, but none of that comes out in his in his text or in his in his Facebook post. It's just they screwed up his name and that put him over the edge and now we won't stop talking about it. But that's what happens in did, our did industry. Did you read too. one of my posts? Is that is that where you got that from? I'm just I'm just kidding. I didn't rip I didn't rip a Starbucks apart. Just, I wouldn't do it. <laughs> And it's just, it's the irony of it that we don't get the backstory to why people get angry at something. And there's probably, you know, we always talk about there's three sides, right? There's 
person one, there's person two, and in the middle is is the truth. And and poor Mike had a terrible, terrible start to the day, and and getting his name wrong just was what put him over the edge. But nobody's going to learn about that backstory. They just know that 32nd Street couldn't even get the name right, and now we shouldn't go do business with them. And that's what can happen if we don't take care of customers and look beyond just the basics, right? No, I, I and, agree with you. I think some of the best dealers I work with right now really do understand that uh, perception is reality. Like it's not, it's yeah. reality is not reality. It is just one's perception of it is, is yeah. reality. I mean, I mean, look, I don't think I have any dealers out there that are, are just like, yep, we do a horrible job. We don't give a good experience. You know, like no, like no one in their right mind thinks they don't provide a good experience, right? Everybody thinks they do, but it doesn't matter if they think they do or not. It's the perception of the people that are coming in and engaging them do. You know, I, I recently just like actually just before this whole COVID, I started seeing a new a new position pop up in several different dealerships. And I, I'm curious if you know any or if you've heard any of this because I thought it was kind of cool. And I saw it at one at a group level and then I actually saw a couple at a dealer, uh, dealerships. It was mainly in the US. These guys were called uh, directors or mar or managers of the little things. And no. I was like, I like this. I'm going to call this person because that's a power of LinkedIn, right? It's the best part. I'm just going to reach out. Yeah. I'm like, I want to know what your job is. And I, sure enough, I, I, I talked to this guy. His name's Curtis. Works at a dealer group in the South. Uh, it's like 12 or 13 dealerships. And his job, his job is literally to go from dealership to dealership and just look at the little things. Because it was the little things they were getting burned on. I'm curious yeah. to see what your thoughts. Do you see, do you see that something is kind of coming a norm sometime in the future? Well, I think if you have to hire that, then you've got other issues in your dealership because, because the people you're hiring should be looking after the little things. And, th and that's where I say hiring for CX success is so important. And, you know, I, I'm very, very specific with the, the people that I talk to about that CX and hiring that you can't just get somebody in front of you and ask the standard staple of questions have a conversation with them. You really need to learn about them. Take them on a walk around the dealership, get their buy-in to what you're doing and, and ask for stories. I mean, you know, when you, what's the worst experience you had and how did you feel in that moment? You're going to get people that'll open up and say, here's what happened to me. I was, I went out for dinner and, and the guy spilled the coffee and it burned my leg and they didn't offer me anything. And we paid for the full meal. We'll never go back there. So well, how did you feel in that moment? I felt ripped off. Okay. So let's say it was a car deal where you had sold a car and you didn't tell a customer that uh, it did not come with Bluetooth, for example, even though everything comes with Bluetooth. Let's say you didn't tell them it didn't come with Bluetooth tooth, and they were expecting to be able to connect their phone. What would you do when they came in upset about it? And then you're going to find out, well, how would they handle the situation? What would they do to make it better? If it's a rational, you know, response and makes sense, I'd be apologetic. I would go over the brochure with them and show them where it said that it didn't. And they were price conscious and we'll go over that. Okay. What would you do to fix the problem? I think we'd offer to bring the car back if we could and put him into the one that he wants, or maybe buy an aftermarket one. Great answer. That's a great, that's a way to solve a problem. Person thinks on their feet. Do I want to hire somebody like that? hundred percent. If the answer is, I don't know, I'd probably turn them over to the manager. Yeah, no, that's not the answer. That's why you need a manager or director of little things, right? So it's, it's so kind of like I, what the new sales manager is going to look like, right? Like, I mean, I'm yeah, thinking exactly. about it, right? Is like the, the new sales manager is going to become that kind of that manager of the little things. When we stop managing this strict 12 point process, all right. And we kind of let this free flowing, let the customer kind of, you know, I, I think of it kind of like, do you remember those? Like when I was a kid, I read those adventure books where it's like yeah. you got up to a certain point in the book. And it's like, if you wanted him to go into the forest, go to page 162. If you want him to go into the swamp, go to page 79. Right. And I just feel like that's kind of how like I see kind of the new process working. It's like customer gets to a certain point. You just kind of which way do you want to go? But it is going to be, it is going to take someone that is going to kind of manage the little things, you know, to be able to kind of execute this type of, of process because it's not so straightforward as it has been in the past. I'm, I'm going to give you, and, and, you know, for the people that are listening to the podcast, I, I, I've worked with a number of dealers and, and, you know, dealt with a number of customer issues. And there's one thing that I think that they neglect to do. Too often you get into a standoff with the customer. 
And, you know, the worst thing that can happen is you get into that standoff in the showroom or in the service department and other customers hear it and stuff like that. You got to de-escalate. So one of the things that I've learned, and I think it would be beneficial for anybody listening to actually incorporate into this as a process for handling irate customers, agree with them. Put a caveat, but a customer that approaches me with an issue, my first response is always, sir or ma'am, if what you're telling me is true, you have every right to be upset with us. What I'd like to do is ask you to come in, sit down so I can hear more about the experience. I'd like to take some notes so that I can handle it the right way. And if this is factual, and I hope you understand that I want to be able to talk with my consultants as well about what happened. But if everything you're saying is true, you can be rest assured we're going to take care of it. Can you come on into my office? It's over at that point in time because what are they going to do? Are they going to yell at you for giving them the recognition that they're right? No, they might say, well, yeah, I'm going to come in because I want you to know exactly how bad it is. I understand. Let's come into my office so we can sit down and, and I'd really like to hear exactly what happened. It's off the floor. It's in the office. But there's nothing wrong with saying if what you're saying is true, because you're not saying you're right. You're not giving the customer the satisfaction of, you know, admit admission that we've done something wrong. But if what you're saying is true, you have every right to be upset and I want to fix it. So come on into my office. I'd like to take some notes. I want to get everything. That's an you awesome tip. I love that. That's that's so will de-escalate things so much better in the showroom and get them into an office. You can shut the door and have a, and, and again, you know, we, when I started with the, the, with the Plaza group, um, you know, you talk about people admitting that they do things wrong. Uh, we had terrible Google ratings. Everything for the most part was, you know, barely at four or below for the, the five, six stores. Um, we called it out and we put three, you know, unconditional aspects of the business in place. One is treat people the way you want to be treated. Number two is the only failure is the failure to try. So if you want to help a customer out, you do everything you can to help a customer out. As long as the customer sees that you're trying to help them out, the answer can't be, yeah, no, we don't do that. Well, let me see what we can do. It should always be, let me see what we can do. And then the last one is, you know, integrity matters. So be open and transparent with your, with your customers. Don't try and mislead them because they're going to find out. So we implemented that and our Google ratings went up, up, up and up till every store was, was at four or higher. And, you know, it was just putting pieces in place and using techniques like I just talked about where we deescalate customers. And I think that, you know, fighting with a customer, arguing with a customer gets you nowhere. Understanding that they've got a concern and recognizing where you can have some middle ground will solve most of the problems. And I think we lack that in this business in a lot of cases. I think as we get better at doing that, it's going to make for a better environment and customer experience. Oh, no, I, I, I'm, I'm so with you on that. And that is kind of what it all comes down to is just it is that customer experience. And, you know, I, I think in the last four or five months because of this pandemic, we've been forced up our game in the customer experience. Um, I, I'm pretty confident and it kind of when we started this conversation was like, you know, where do you think we're going to have to do or what we're going to have to do over this next six to 12 months to be successful? And I think we've kind of, we kind of knocked it out of the park here. It's like really continue to develop that customer experience, right? Continue yeah. to kind of put that customer at the center, be aware of the little things, you know, um, hire for CX, not for superstar, you know, nature. It's like, it, it's just, the more we seem to do for the customer, the more we seem to win. And I mean, you've been in a lot of dealerships. I've been in a lot of dealerships. I find that to be kind of a consistent pattern. Do you do you agree? Do you kind of see that same thing? Yeah, I do. And, and you know, I look at some changes that are happening because we've talked about different models for dealerships. There was a um, um, really good dealer that I talked to in the U.S. And, and he's really thinking about modifying his floor to be uh, product advisors. Okay. And the product advisors, their entire job is to be exceptionally happy and explain the product to the customers. And then the customer decides they want to buy, turn them over to a manager and let the manager complete the deal. And, and, you know, I, I, I've seen dealerships where uh, the, the salespeople are also the F and I, and I've seen stores where it goes to an F and I, I think, one of the challenges that we faced is too many 
touch points in the dealership where I've, I've had somebody meet and greet me. I've met with a salesperson. I've met the F&I manager, sorry, the sales manager. And then I'm into the F&I manager. And there's four different people I've interacted. In what industry other than ours, does that really happen? When you buy a house, you have an agent, the agent takes you to the homes. You look at the homes, you buy the house. When you deal with your banker, you have your banker that you deal with. Like, it's very, very, and I buying suits. I mean, look at you, you're dressed, you got the pretty, you know, you have a beautiful tie on, you got the vest, well, you got, thank you. you're always well dressed. But, you know, there's probably a guy that you go to that you trust that, and you're not going to go to somebody else. If you happen to stop in and they're not there, you'll go, yeah, I'm to look around, but you probably won't commit to buying anything till your guy's back there. And it's that's totally because true. once you find that person, you want to deal with the one person because you know that you can trust them. You know that you have confidence with them. And I think that's where things fall apart because, you know, you get story one from the salesperson, you get story two from the sales manager, you get story three in the F&I office. And if they don't completely add up, that's where the customer trust goes down. And that's where you get Gallup saying that there's only an 8% trustworthiness with salespeople. And, and you know what, don't you think that should be kind of one of our ultimate goals as as a dealership is that, you know, we do want people to trust us. See, if we put that, if we if we say like, all right, we know what we do, we know how we do. We were talking about this earlier. We know what we do, we know what we, how we do, all right? If why we do it the way we do it is with the goal and objective in mind to gain the customer's trust, boy, 100%. that would fundamentally shift the way we handle a lot of things right now at that moment. And I think it would it would change things for sure. I mean, look, to your point of having the four touch points, I agree with you, like that's changing. I think a lot of dealerships, especially during this pandemic was doing a lot with a little. So they're realizing yeah. that even from an operations perspective, that may not have been the most efficient thing, most profitable way. You know, it's like putting people, empowering people to handle the entire relationship mm -hmm. seems to be the one that's going to give us the best results. Ted, I, I know it's towards the end of our time today, and I'm confident we could probably jam for a couple hours. We could, for we could sure. For sure. Um, but before I let you go, I get to ask my, my last question of the day. It's always my favorite question. I ask everyone when they come on. So here it goes. Mr. Ted Lancaster, what is pissing you off? <laughs> what is pissing me off? You know what I, I, I'll tell you what it is. And it's, it's one of these things that is rooted in my experiences throughout the years. Still the battle between the OEM and the dealer. Uh, and, and I say that, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to do two things. I'm going to give a call out to uh, Subaru, Don Durst and the Subaru team, because their relationship with the dealers is fantastic. And there's a reason why it is fantastic. And there's a reason why they are number one all the time uh, in the CADA survey. And that is because not only do they listen to the dealers, they collaborate with the dealers. Um, they don't force too much on the dealers, but if they do, it's in a way that um, they've shown the benefit to the dealer and, and the dealer's adopt and, and engage with them um, because of it. I think I think the OEM really has uh, I think most OEMs have the best interests of the dealer body at heart and I think dealers you know they're entrepreneurs they're very intelligent people um, and there's a lot of great people but because they're entrepreneurs they see um, that they have a way that they think their business should run and that sometimes the OEM can interfere too much in it. And I think there is a fine line. I think there are some OEMs that do interfere too much. I think there's some dealers that are just purely reluctant to adopt and, and, and bridging that gap, I think would be really, really good because at the end of the day, to what we've talked about, it's the customer that's most important in all this because the OEM doesn't exist and the dealer doesn't exist without the customer. Nothing happens until we sell a car. Once you sell a car, then you can, as an OEM, wholesale another car. The factory can build another car and wholesale it to the, to the region or, or the country. And then all the companies that make the parts can build the parts. So when you look at this industry, nothing happens until we've sold that car. You know, the chicken and the egg mentality. This is not one that's hard. Do you have to build the car? for? You got to sell the car. You got to have a customer at the end that is going to purchase the vehicle before the next steps can happen. I really believe that. And I think that if, if I have any wish, I, I wish OEMs and dealers would, would get more on the same page, get tighter relationships like they do with, 
with a company like Subaru. Um, and I think you'll get more overall wins in the industry. I, I agree with you. I mean, even as a dealer principal myself, it was constantly fighting. Like I probably spent more time and energy just arguing and fighting with my OEM on certain on certain initiatives. Yeah, it was yeah. just it took away from I think a lot of the time that I could invest it elsewhere. So, you know, I agree with you. I think certain manufacturers are definitely better than others. Um, um, but yeah, I I would love to see that relationship get closer. I'm with you on that. Hey, um, Ted, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, jam with me today. For everyone out there that's listening and watching right now and would love to connect with you and kind of follow along with your journey, what is the best way to do so? Um, well, I mean, LinkedIn's probably easiest. Uh, that's that's the best. Um, you know, you, you didn't ask that other question you thought you were going to. I told you a secret at the do I, start. Do I get to? Do I get to? You can ask the question. All right. All right, Ted. I know, look, I know a lot of things have changed for you, so I get to ask yeah. the question. I'm so glad you let me do it. Um, all right. You, there, there's, there's some new stuff on the horizon for you, and um, I would love to know more about what that, that new opportunity is for you. All right. So so I did. I, I stepped away from the, the Plaza Group to... Uh, you know, I, I put on my LinkedIn profile that CEO coming soon. And I've teased some some friends with, you know, I have the, the picture of the Peugeot logo, picture of the Cherry logo. And, and you know, I kind of said to them, one of these companies is, so so what it is, um, for years and years, you know, you, you, you'd listen to dealers um, and, you know, you have great relationships with some dealers, you have good with others, and there's some dealers that you didn't get along with. And, you know, I was in one of those positions where you couldn't always make everybody happy. Um but the one thing that I will say is that even dealers that we may not have seen eye to eye on offered some great feedback and great advice. So listening to that over the years, um, I really, really wanted to focus on fixing some of the challenges that I saw at dealerships. And one of the things that I see as a challenge is how dealers use data. Um, you know, they they buy very robust CRMs and then they complain that their salespeople are only using 60 to 70% of it. And, you know, the DMS, I've got all this information. All I want them to do is run the data and grab customers in the service department and, and create quotes and things like that, that can provide um, information on whether they should buy now, you know, with the new programs. We, we run into all these challenges where the people aren't doing it. And we don't have anybody monitoring it. And nobody's hammering that on a regular basis. So, um, you know, as a question, I, I posed it to some people that are, you know, way more intelligent with coding and developing than I am. Uh, and they say, yeah, we can, we can do stuff like that. So uh, company is, is going to be called Core Dealer Services. And it's going to be um, really a, a, a new innovative CRM combined with an equity mining piece where um, there's some automation to it. What the big thing is, is you, you don't want to have to go find it. You want the system to run on its own. And, and this is really what we're working on. Uh, and we expect to launch at the end of the quarter. Uh, so very, very excited about it. Um, it's going to be, I think, very unique in the industry. There are some that do similar to what we're, we're working on, but um, where ours is different is that automation piece. And really it's... Um, I think when it when it's launched and people see the aesthetics of it and how functional it is and how it integrates with their DMS, we've already we're already CERTI approved or PBS approved. That's so cool. CDK approved. Um, you know, we got partnerships with great companies like Moto Insight, BlackBook. But really, I guess the best way to to, to describe it is um, I'll use I'll use the hotel industry real quick. So let's say you travel to Orlando every single year in December and you, you're down there for two weeks, but on the way down, you like to stop in Savannah, Georgia, and you stop at a Hilton hotel and you've done it for the last 10 years. So think about a system that in the background is, is taking all the information, about all the customers that visit and they all of a sudden realize, Hey, Jason Harris usually books by now because he stays sometime between the 15th and 17th. He's been doing it for eight years, but he hasn't booked yet. We need to send him, a notice saying, hey, it's the Savannah Hilton Hotel. Jason, we've enjoyed you, you, you visiting us the last eight years. And uh, we noticed you haven't booked. Did you want to book? We've got a special link right now where you can automatically book your room and you can click on it and it's going to give you a discount. It's going to tell you all the history of what, what you've ordered, what you've done, everything. And you can just click and you're booked and you're ready to go. 
So think about that for automotive, right? That's, Where that's going to be cool. You know, Jason, look, you, you bought this car two years ago and you've paid 24 months payment and your payments are X number of dollars, but guess what? It's a Honda. So Honda's come up with this great program. We look at a new CRV versus the CRV you're driving. You can get into this new one with the new technology and it's going to be, uh, $15 less bi-weekly for you because of how unique it is and because of the trade value on your vehicle. And it's going to create a deal sheet and that deal sheet's going to be sent to you. You'll be able to look at that deal sheet and engage or not engage. And whether you say, yes, I want to continue getting more information or no, I don't still going to connect to a salesperson. The salesperson can be able to follow up. Why'd you say no to that? <laughs> right? So it's really doing the work of the salesperson and, um, it's, it's exciting for me because it's a different stream, but it's taking everything that I've learned from dealers and what they've been bothered with in the industry. And I'm able to create something that I think is very usable, very friendly for, for their GM and their salespeople to utilize. Uh, so very excited about launching it. And, you know, we're going to be into dealerships before the end of the year and, and just I'm looking forward to getting that, going. That, that, is, that is very exciting, Ted. I love seeing new tech like that. And I love even more seeing new tech like that that comes from just a real core understanding of operations. I find uh, way too often tech comes out and there's just that disconnect. It's like, have, have you sold a car before? <laughs> you know, so that that that's really cool. That's very exciting. I'm so happy for you. Um, wish you all the best with that. Um, for sure. You know, the first link, let me know so we can post it on here. So people are watching, Absolutely. listening, can can check it out because I know I'll definitely be checking it out. Um, hey, uh, Ted, thank you so much for taking the time to jam with me today. This has been Anytime. a total blast. You, you yeah. have yourself an amazing day. Thank you very much, Jason. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to the Strategy Mob Podcast with your host, Jason Harris. Don't want to miss new content? Be sure to sign up to be a mobster at strategymob.com to stay in the know. Remember to like, comment, and subscribe. Happy podcasting.